All right. Well, thank you for coming to a great cloud of witnesses. You know that I'm getting serious about a class when I have to bring a separate bag for books that I'm going to be referencing, getting serious. Um, we're going to start our class. It's, this is a four-week class, and we're going to start our class each week by reading the Apostles' Creed together. And so we'll have it up here on the screen, and um, there's not really a consensus how old the Apostles' Creed is, but usually a consensus is it's very, very old. And this is um, a creed that Christians have been confessing since the earliest days of the church, and so we'll confess it together tonight. And so read with me. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let's pray together. God, we are thankful for the great cloud of witnesses that you have provided for us, certainly in Scripture men and women seeking to live faithfully for you, to follow your way as they walk through this world with their eyes on the heavenly city. We ask that as we study over the next few weeks, men and women who lived after Bible times, but before our time, that you would encourage us, you would strengthen our faith, that maybe you would peel back some presuppositions that we have about believers in other periods of time and that we would humbly learn from these men and women who lived for you faithfully. And um, so we ask this by your grace that you would change us, that you would form us more into the image of Christ as we study this subject. Amen. Well, it's kind of nice when... I have a part in planning what we teach about on Sunday night because sometimes I can just sneak in subjects that I really want to teach about. And um, I I do have to get Jerry's okay for these things, but um, it's nice to be able to do this stuff. I love history, and I hope that comes out a little bit uh, over the next four weeks as as we walk through this subject together. Um, But it's not just that I love this subject kind of in a nerdy way, although I do sometimes love this subject in a nerdy way. but it's edifying. And we just had a class on edification with prophecy. And um, as we learn about brothers and sisters in Christ from previous ages, it builds us up and it strengthens our faith and it encourages us. And um, I find often that when I'm reading about believers in other periods of times that my affections are swelling for the Lord and I'm encouraged and challenged in a lot of ways. And so it's a privilege for us to be able to study church history, but I've got a few things pegged out of why we should study church history. And the first, these men and women are brothers and sisters to us. They are family in a very real way. When we study church history, we are studying our family tree. And we need to remember that because sometimes we can get quickly dismissive 
of believers in other periods of time and kind of treat them like the redheaded stepchildren of our family tree. But this is our family tree. These are brothers and sisters in Christ. A book I'm going to be referencing quite a bit, and I'd encourage you to pick it up if this subject interests you. Brian Litfin, Getting to Know the Church Fathers. And uh, as we'll see in a minute, this includes church fathers and mothers. But that was a professor of mine in college, and he says this, Despite our indifference to their world, we are inextricably bound to the church fathers. They are our spiritual ancestors, for better or for worse. Just like the family tree we inherit, we are their descendants, whether we like it or not. And we'd be missing some real treasures if we didn't explore our Christian origins. One of the things I hope to accomplish in this class is to make some of these brothers and sisters real for us. I don't, if, you, if you've come to classes of mine before, I don't typically do PowerPoint. Um, but one of the reasons I'm using PowerPoint for this class is I want you to see pictures of these people. Now, a lot of these pictures aren't accurate. They're paintings and stuff. But, um, but at least to start to form in your mind, like, these people really lived. They were really around. They were really facing these challenges. They were really writing these things and, and living in these situations. And so we'll be looking at timelines and we'll be looking at maps and we'll be looking at pictures of these brothers and sisters in Christ. But I want to put flesh and blood on these spiritual ancestors of ours so that we see them as real people that we can relate to. The second thing, uh, the reason why we should study church history is these brothers and sisters in many ways are different from us. And that's a good thing that they are different from us. Now, I, I referenced this quote when I was announcing this class a couple of weeks ago, but um, if you don't pick up this book on the Incarnation, we're not going to be studying Athanasius in this class, but you can find the introduction to this book online, just in different places. C.S. Lewis's introduction to On the Incarnation. And he says this, one of my favorite quotes outside of the Bible, Every age has its own outlook. It's especially good at seeing certain truths and specially liable to make certain mistakes. He's talking about us, modern Christians. We all, therefore, need the books that will correct the characteristic mistakes of our own period, and that means old books. The only palliative, the only solution, the only remedy for this is to keep the clean sea breeze of the centuries blowing through our minds, and this can be done only by reading old books. Not, of course, that there's any magic about the past. People were no cleverer then than they are now. They made as many mistakes as we. And this is crucial, but not the same mistakes. Not the same mistakes. They will not flatter us in the errors that we're already committing. And their own errors, being now open and palpable, will not endanger us. We get this safe distance from history where they're not making the same mistakes as us, and they're going to challenge us in some blind spots that we have that we're not even aware of as modern Christians. We don't know to think any differently. At the same time, yes, there are errors in these old brothers and sisters, just like there are errors in us, in our thinking, in our living. But it's important that these brothers and sisters are different from us, and they expose some blind spots that we have in living as believers in the 21st century in the West, It's also important to note many of the men and women that we are studying won't look like us. They're not going to speak the same languages that we do. Their cultures are going to be pretty different from our culture, although we're going to see in a minute that there's some similarities too. But this is a good thing, that we get to meet brothers and sisters in Christ 
from different places, speaking different languages, in different cultures. They're going to challenge how we think and how we live. So we study history because these are our brothers and sisters, because these men and women and their situations are different from us. But at the same time, I hope this isn't a contradiction, we also study because in a lot of ways their situations aren't that different from ours. And the more we look into the lives and the thinking of these brothers and sisters, we see a lot of similarities. Brian Litvin says this about specifically how early Christians understand Scripture. This is really important. While the church fathers' interpretive principles and worldview may have been different than ours, we certainly cannot accuse them of being ignorant of the Scriptures. We can't do that. If you pick up one of these books, there's so many citations of the Bible often that they can't fit them all on the bottom of the page. They're all over the place, either quotations or allusions. They know the Bible really, really well, better than we do. And so, yes, they get stuff wrong. Everybody gets stuff wrong. But we shouldn't have this kind of air of arrogance that early Christians had no idea what they were talking about just because they're from another time period. Our study of the Christians of the past should energize us to ministry and exhort us to faithfulness. It should give us a sense that we are not alone, that we're a part of something grand and magnificent, that we must fight, fight the good fight in our, in our generation just like those who went before us. One of the things that we'll see specifically in the early church, thinking through how their situation is similar to our situation, they're living, for the most part, in a time period characterized by pluralism, paganism, and nationalism. And if we look around ourselves and see our own context, we're living in a time of pluralism and paganism and nationalism, just like they were. So we've got some things to learn because they've walked through a period of time like this before us. Just a quick note as we get started on who we're studying, we're really talking about church fathers and church mothers. Church fathers is just kind of a collective term for early believers. So Litvin concludes kind of the introduction to his book. He says, we can define the church fathers as those who lived righteously and passed down to later generations the core tenets of the Christian faith that they themselves had received from the apostles. In other words, the church fathers and mothers are those men and women whose beliefs and lifestyles were consistent with what's recorded as the apostolic teaching found in scriptures. Thus, the ancient fathers provide us with the first links of continuity to our Christian past. Now, I don't know about you, that gets me excited. The first links that we have to our Christian past, going way, 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 way back to just after the time of the New Testament. How were these believers living in the world? What were they doing? What did they think? How did they act? What challenges were they facing? So we're going to start, before we get into Irenaeus, and this is who we're talking about tonight. I don't think that's a snapshot of Irenaeus. Uh, this is an artistic rendering, and if I was Irenaeus, I'd be a little bit upset about this artistic rendering. Um, we're going to talk about Irenaeus of Lyon. This is Lyon in France. Uh, in the Roman Empire, this was Lugdunum, so I think it was a good name change from Lugdunum to Lyon, but we refer to him as Irenaeus of Lyon, architect of orthodoxy, defender of scripture, and uh, I couldn't find really a better picture of him. For some reason, they always go with the big forehead for Irenaeus. It's just what they do. So uh, anyways, before we start talking about Irenaeus, let's get a quick snapshot of Irenaeus's world. 
What was he living in? And so this is, this is the first few Christian centuries. And so stuff that we should be familiar with around AD 33, the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. We should be familiar with that. We should kind of have that pegged in our mind. We don't know the exact date, but somewhere around there. And the same thing for AD 100, the death of the apostle John. That's not a precise date, but somewhere around 100, the close of that first century, we've got the death of the apostle John, the close of the apostolic age. Now you'll see kind of what's important during this time period is whoever's in charge of the Roman Empire, different things are going to be happening in the Roman Empire to Christians because different people in charge have different policies, much like we have today with our policies. So in AD 56, we've got the martyrdom of Polycarp in Smyrna. We're going to see that Polycarp actually mentored Irenaeus. He was martyred in Smyrna, which is kind of Turkey today. Um, He was martyred in AD 56. There was an outbreak of persecution and he was killed for his faith. We're going to read a little bit more about Polycarp. AD 177, there's another persecution under Marcus Aurelius. Probably a little bit more familiar with that name. AD 202, persecution under Septimius Severus. And this is actually when most people think Irenaeus died. So that's a key date for us is 202. There's another kind of outbreak of persecution. Irenaeus is killed at that time most likely. AD 249, we've got the persecution under Decius. And then AD 313, really important date in the history of the world, history of Christianity, we've got the Edict of Milan under Constantine. He's granting religious tolerance to Christians, which they hadn't really had before that. Um, You've got AD 325, the Council of Nicaea. The Nicene Creed comes from that. AD 381, the Council of Constantinople, where you see kind of expansion and clarification of the Nicene Creed. And then for our purposes in this class over the four weeks, 410 is going to kind of be the cap for us. You've got the sacking of Rome by the Visigoths. The Roman Empire is kind of spiraling downward. And that's when Augustine writes the city of God. And he's the last guy that we're going to study over these four weeks is Augustine of Hippo. And so you get kind of this snapshot, but we're going to drill down just a little bit for our purposes because this is important. We're going to talk about Pliny and we're going to talk about Trajan. So these guys are coming before the lifetime of Irenaeus. We're going to look at Irenaeus' life in just a minute. But what's interesting about Pliny and Trajan is they're trying to figure out what do we do with these Christians. Pliny's a governor in Turkey, uh, northern Turkey. Trajan is the emperor. And Pliny's trying to figure out, hey, officially, we're not supposed to kind of accept these Christians. I've got Christians in my area. What do you want me to do with them? So he's facing these Christians. Huso Gonzalez, a church historian, says, those who persisted in their faith posed a different problem. Pliny's practice was to offer them three opportunities to recant while threatening them with death. If they refused, he had them executed, not so much for being Christians as for their obstinacy. They're stubborn. These Christians aren't giving up. If they were Roman citizens, he had them sent to Rome as the law required. He sends a letter to Emperor Trajan trying to figure out, hey, I'm trying to enforce the law. There's these Christians who are uh, proclaiming another, another religion that we're not really cool with. I'm putting some of these guys to death, not putting some of these guys to death. What do you really want me to do with these people? So Gonzalez tells us that the policies which Trajan, the emperor, outlined in his response to Pliny were followed far beyond their borders of Bithynia. What he's doing is he's setting up policy for the whole Roman Empire, basically until Constantine comes in. So this is important for our purposes over the next 200 years almost. These guys are setting policy in the Roman Empire. Throughout the second century and part of the third, it was imperial policy not to seek out Christians, but still to punish them when they were brought before the authorities. 
Prominent early believers, Ignatius and Polycarp, were actually martyred under these policies in the second century. So they're not seeking people out. But if it's kind of like, man, we can't really ignore this, Christians were being put to death under these policies. We saw Polycarp dies in 156, and he's a, he's a prominent early believer, as we'll see. He's actually a disciple of the Apostle John, like the Apostle John from the New Testament, mentored him. That's pretty incredible. Um, and Polycarp's martyrdom is worth mentioning. Uh, I think it's, it's pretty encouraging for us as believers. It says, speaking about Polycarp, under these Pliny, Trajan, um, under their policies, it says, the proconsul who presided at Polycarp's trial tried to persuade him, urging him to think about his advanced age. He's really old. And worship the emperor. When Polycarp refused, the judge ordered him to cry out with the atheists. These are the people who have no visible gods, Christians. So he's trying to get him to recant his Christianity by saying, out with the atheists. To this, Polycarp responded by pointing at the crowd around him. Can't see that this is popular. Pointing at the crowd around him and saying, yes, out with the atheists. This is what Polycarp responds. His life is on the line here. Again, the judge insisted, promising that if he would swear by the emperor and curse Christ, he would be free to go. But Polycarp replied, one of the more famous quotes from early church history, for 86 years I have served him and he has done me no evil. How could I curse my king who saved me? And he was martyred for his faith, Polycarp. And so you see what these policies are doing is, you know, if somebody's somewhat being obnoxious about their faith, okay, we're going to pursue these people. We're going to put them to death. Um, but we're going to ignore some Christians as well. We're not going to pursue these. It's interesting to note, even if you look at the account of Polycarp, and, and we need to have this in our minds, believers at this time, for the most part, they weren't seeking martyrdom. There were some misguided people who were. They were like, this is the way to go out, is I'm going to be really bold in my faith and be killed. But even Polycarp, we see him in hiding before he's captured. Eventually, he has to hide so much, he just says, this must be the Lord's will for me to die. And so he, he goes in and, and, and he's killed. Um, he gives up hiding. But, um, so this is the basic climate for Christians in the first two centuries of the Roman Empire. So if you can start to wrap your mind around that, we're kind of talking about this as an, in an offhand way. But for the first two centuries of Christian existence after the New Testament, this is kind of what believers are under, is, hey, they're not actively pursuing me most of the time, but sometimes they are. And if I get, you know, if I'm too outspoken about my faith, I could be dragged in front of a court, asked to recant publicly, and if I don't, I will be killed for my faith. So this is the basic climate, but there are some, some exceptions, and we're going to get into the life of Irenaeus because these exceptions are important um, for Irenaeus. Just a quick picture of Constantine, because it's, it's Constantine, he dies in 337, but you saw the, the Edict of Milan, I think 311. Um, but that's really what put a stop to this type of thing that Pliny and Trajan set up of, not going to pursue them, but we are going to kill them if they're too obnoxious. Constantine ends that with the Edict of Milan, and so that's kind of the capstone on this era um, of open persecution of Christians, followed by the Council of Nicaea, which had to be so bizarre, and we'll talk about this in a few weeks, but Christians who, for a lot of their lives, have been hiding from the Roman Empire were now sanctioned to call a council by the Roman Empire. So it's kind of bizarre for them of like, the government doesn't hate us anymore. They're actually asking us to gather as a bunch of Christians and make some decisions about doctrine. And I'm also imagining it didn't look exactly like this. I don't know that they had all the hats and things, but, um, but we'll talk about Nicaea in a few weeks. But that's kind of the cap on this period of church history where persecution 
in this way is a real thing. Here's Irenaeus again, dies in 202, as we saw. Um, we don't know for sure, but there's kind of a general consensus that he probably died as a martyr in 202 under uh, one of the emperors that wanted to pursue Christians more openly. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the life of Irenaeus. So we've got kind of a sketch of his life. Uh, we've got A.D. 130, Irenaeus is born in Smyrna. Uh, this is where Polycarp was killed. Um, this is in Turkey, and so he's born in Smyrna. We actually don't even know when he was born. Is around 130. Um, sketchy details about his life, but his boyhood in Smyrna under Bishop Polycarp. And as I said, Polycarp is a disciple of the Apostle John. I might point this out a couple times because it blows my mind. Irenaeus was discipled by Polycarp. Polycarp was discipled by John, who wrote massive portions of our New Testament. So kind of wrap your mind around that. If you're like grandfather in the faith was John. Like that is incredible. But this is how close we are to the start of the church, uh, just after the first century. At some point, we don't know exactly when Irenaeus immigrates from Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, to Gaul, modern-day France. We're going to put a, a map up in a minute if you can't visualize this. I know every, not everybody are map people. We don't know exactly when that took place, but he, he makes this big journey. Uh, AD 177, persecution in Lyon in Vienna under Marcus Aurelius. So Marcus Aurelius uh, decides that he's going to persecute Christians a little bit more openly, and emperors could do that if they wanted to. And so the bishop of Lyon at that time, Fotinus, he's killed. And Irenaeus is there, and, and as we see, this is what allows Irenaeus to be installed as bishop of Lyon, is that his predecessor was killed. So again, very kind of different mindset to what we're thinking. How did you get your job, Irenaeus? My predecessor was killed for being a Christian, and I'm now taking his job as the bishop of this city. Um, it's interesting, Irenaeus's name means peaceful, um, and he actually plays mediator. You know, we have like the worship wars in modern Christianity, and there's other things that we like, like to bicker about as modern Christians. What they were bickering about at this time was the date of Easter, and they were getting like really upset about it, and they were trying to figure out, um, the bishop of Rome was trying to figure out of, should I make everybody else celebrate Easter the same day that we do? Now, this has been settled Everybody's kind of on the same page about Easter now for the most part, although some, some different cultures celebrate it a little bit differently than, than ours. But um, anyways, he, he plays mediator here, so he's really living up to his name as Irenaeus, peaceful. Uh, he goes to Rome and kind of talks the bishop of Rome down and uh, uses scripture to do that. He says, hey, Paul kind of urges us not to get worked up about dates and times and things like that. So uh, let's not excommunicate people who have a different date to celebrate Easter on uh, sometime during this period of time, Irenaeus writes the refutation and overthrow of knowledge falsely so-called, also known as against heresies. Uh, the original title is great, but against heresies is a lot easier to remember. Um, so uh, for the most part, if you see this published today, it's against heresies. He also writes the demonstration of the apostolic preaching or on the apostolic preaching, just a shortened name. And then most likely, we don't know this for sure. We don't know when he was born. We don't know for sure when he's died. But most likely, he died under Septimius Severus, um, just like his predecessor. An emperor arose who didn't like Christians that much. Persecution. And Irenaeus is put to death uh, during this time. A um, couple of quotes about Irenaeus that, that might help us sketch in his life a little bit. Um, Polycarp. 
Irenaeus' mentor, Brian Litfin says, it was Polycarp whom Irenaeus remembered as a powerful and formative presence during the early years of his life. Through Polycarp, who had been a disciple of the Apostle John, the boy Irenaeus felt that he was experiencing a living connection with the apostolic age. A living connection with the apostolic age. That's incredible. Um, really, when we think back, how close this was. Um, it was the persecution under Marcus Aurelius that the previous bishop of Leon, Photinus, he dies in that persecution. Um, they think Irenaeus was maybe in Rome at the time, but again, you, you're getting this sketch of the second century of Polycarp, who is his mentor, was killed by the Roman Empire. Photinus, who's um, his predecessor as the bishop of Leon, is killed in persecution by the Roman Empire. And so just a different mindset that they're in, and I don't know exactly what that mindset would be because I've not lived through that, um, but persecution was, was a real thing for believers at this time, particularly people in positions of spiritual leadership. Um, and so this is how, as I said, this is how Irenaeus took over as Bishop of Lyon. Um, and I will mention briefly before we look at, um, uh, at Irenaeus' work, uh, the persecution uh, that, it, that eventually probably killed Irenaeus. But first, we'll, we'll do a map. Not a great map. Hard to find really good ones, at least in my experience, of, of the Roman Empire. But you get kind of a sketch of the Roman Empire. The borders are moving a lot. Um, but you see uh, where he's born, down here in Smyrna, modern-day Turkey, uh, on the right of your screen. And somehow, he made it all the way up here to France, Leon. Um, it's, it's got that great name, Lugdunum, on the map. Um, in the middle here on the Italian boot, you've got Rome, and he probably did spend a good amount of time in Rome in his travels, and uh, certainly when he interceded over this Easter controversy, uh, he spent some time in Rome talking down the bishop of Rome. Um, Probably martyred under Septimius Severus in AD 202. Uh, Gonzalez, church historian, says, Septimius Severus proposed to bring all his subjects together under the worship of Saul Invictus, the unconquered son, and to subsume under that worship all the various religions and philosophies then current. All gods were to be accepted as long as one acknowledged the son that reigned above all. So you can see the offense this would be to our beliefs as Christians of, yeah, 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 keep your belief, but the unconquered son reigns over the God of the Bible. He reigns over King Jesus. And so you can see why believers would not be able to abide by this. Therefore, the year 202, when the Edict of Septimius Severus was issued, is a landmark in the history of persecutions. One tradition affirms that Irenaeus suffered martyrdom in that year. It was also at that time that a group of Christians, including Origen's father, Origen, one of the most important theologians of the first couple centuries, Origen's father was killed in Alexandria. Again, this, this picture of like, it seems like you're probably going to know believers that have been killed by the Roman Empire. That's kind of what you're, what you're living with. Uh, since Clement, another important early theologian, was a famous Christian teacher in that city, since the imperial edict was particularly directed against those who sought new converts, he had to seek refuge in areas where he was less known. And so really, Irenaeus' time as the bishop of Lyon was bookmarked by imperial persecution against believers. That's how he got his job, and that's most likely how he was put to death. What's interesting, if we look back at his, at his life, 
you know, I'm hoping that if you put up a timeline of my life whenever I die, there might be a few more details than this on my, on my timeline. Um, but what's interesting is we really don't know about Irenaeus personally. There's not many details that we have about his life. Uh, literally one book I read was like, he was probably born between like 115 and 125, maybe. Then another book was like maybe around 130. We don't know. We don't know. Within a 15-year span, we don't really know. Uh, We're not positive he was martyred, although it seems like it. There's some reference to that. We've only got a few links in Irenaeus' life, so why are we still talking about him? Well, in short, because he wrote two very important books in the history of the early church. Litvin says, since we know so little of Irenaeus' life, why have we described him in this book as a spiritual forefather you should know? It's not because of his biography, but because of the writings that he's left behind for us. Um, when we look at these early church fathers, it's, this is even a little bit interesting. Um, there's another quote from a guy named Bear. By the standards of later church fathers, Irenaeus wasn't a prolific author. He didn't write a lot. Only two of his writings are extant. They're still around. Book three of Against Heresies, Irenaeus mentions that Eleutherus was then the bishop of Rome. As such, this book can be dated with some certainty to that time period. We're going to look at Against Heresies first. And that Irenaeus refers the readers of the demonstration to his work, Refutation, and uh, the long title of his book. It would seem to indicate that demonstration was written later. So it's kind of putting these in order. And so we're going to look at Against Heresies first. Again, the big forehead. I don't know what the deal is, um, but Irenaeus is, is not getting a good shot there. Um, but two writings, and as we look at these two writings, obviously we're going to strip these down a lot. We're not going to go into great t- detail with these. Um, but what's interesting is how early these are and how thorough these books are in kind of picturing early Christian life. And so when we're thinking of Irenaeus as an architect of orthodoxy, somebody who's building up the orthodox faith, and uh, it's, it's important for us to, to categorize some terms now because these will be uh, batted around a little bit during this class. But when we're confessing that we believe in the Catholic Church and the Apostles' Creed, it's got the lowercase c, we're talking about the universal church. We believe that there is one church that exists worldwide, and we're a part of that. Uh, We believe that as Christians. We're not talking about the Roman Catholic Church. Similarly, when I'm talking about him as an architect of orthodoxy, I'm not talking about Eastern Orthodoxy. We've got an Eastern Orthodox Church right next to ours. We're not talking about Eastern Orthodoxy. We're talking about what all Christians everywhere believe. Um, So he's an architect of orthodoxy. And really the big challenge during Irenaeus' lifetime is Gnosticism. Probably a word you've heard kicked around a lot. We actually see, uh, I was in a class this weekend and somehow different texts that kept getting cited in this class were really evidence that there were forms of Gnostic belief in the time of the New Testament. And these develop over time. We'll talk about Gnosticism in just a second. Um, but Gnosticism was very much in the air of the Roman Empire. And the danger of Gnosticism was there's a blend of Gnostic belief with Christian belief. There's this thought that Gnosticism and Christianity aren't so far apart. And we can kind of marry these two things together and it's no big deal, Irenaeus thought, this is a very big deal. So I'm going to write a book called Against Heresies to say that this is a big deal. Um, And so when we talk about Gnosticism and Irenaeus talking against Gnosticism, against heresies is the best snapshot that we have from the second century 
of Gnostic belief. And so a lot of what we understand about what's in the air at this time comes from Irenaeus. Um, but really when we're thinking about Gnosticism, it's, more, it's, it's proper for us to really say Gnosticisms than to say Gnosticism. There's not like a single thread of like, if you're a Gnostic, you believe all this stuff. There's a lot of different forms, a lot of different mutations of Gnosticism. And uh, what's, what's a little bit interesting, I've not read against heresies myself, but apparently Irenaeus gets into a lot of depth going into each of these strands and describing them and showing why they're wrong. And so he gives a really good picture of that. But if we're going to oversimplify, um, really what Gnosticism is talking about is salvation by knowledge. Gnosis is the Greek word for knowledge. So they're talking about salvation by knowledge. Obviously, this is a contrast to salvation by grace, which is what Christians believe. And so there's problems right off the bat when you're talking about you're saved by things that you know. Uh, And as we'll see in just a minute, these are secret things that you know. Um, Second thing, there's an emphasis on dualism in Gnostic thought. We're going to see one strand of this in a minute with uh, Marcionism. Uh, But there's this emphasis on dualism. The easiest one to pick on is like the spirit versus the flesh. This could kind of go in different ways. Uh, Gnostics could be like really aesthetic, ascetic, sorry, ascetic, because uh, they thought the body didn't matter, matter so much. They would like abuse their bodies. Like I'm going to starve myself because my, my body doesn't matter. It's just my spirit. On the far other end of the spectrum, there were Gnostics that were saying, I can live however I want to because my body doesn't matter. It's just my spirit. And so if I want to go to orgies, if I want to get drunk every day, it doesn't matter how I live because this is just the flesh. This is fading away. It doesn't matter. And obviously, as we look at Christian belief, this is an issue because we believe the body does matter. Um, And so you see this dualism, this prominence of secret knowledge. This is really where the name comes from, gnosis, uh, Gnosticism. And, um, and so there's this progression of secret knowledge and figuring out how to get saved. And so what Irenaeus does in Against Heresies is he offers this really thorough index of Gnostic thought in the second century, and he refutes it using scripture. So this is a great apologetic work. I don't know if this is like light bedtime reading, probably wouldn't recommend it for that. Um, but we should be thankful that there have been believers especially this early on, and we're going to talk about this before we close, Gnostic thought is still all over the church and all over our culture. So we still need the insights that Irenaeus is offering to us because this hasn't gone away. This is a natural, sinful human tendency to go in this direction. So we need to be thankful that there is a brother very early on saying, no, this is not compatible with Christian belief. Uh, and And he takes a stand on that. Uh, it, maybe to, to uh, put a little bit of flesh on Irenaeus, um, Philip Schaff, a church historian from the 19th century, says Irenaeus had manifestly taken great pains to make himself acquainted with the various heretical systems which he describes. So you can, you can get a picture of his mind a little bit that he's taking pains to go through all of these and say, what are these people that I completely disagree with, what do they believe? And how can I show, how can I refute this from Scripture that this is not okay? His mode of exposing and refuting these is generally very effective. It's plain that he possessed a good share of learning. He had a firm grasp on the doctrines of Scripture. We're going to see that again on the apostolic preaching. And this is, this is good. Not unfrequently, he indulges in a kind of sarcastic humor while inveighing against the folly and impiety of the heretics. So somehow, Irenaeus, while he's railing against heretics, he can be sarcastic and a little bit funny about their beliefs. And some Gnostic beliefs are just really funny. 
Um, it's worth saying before moving on, as I talk about him as an architect of orthodoxy, thinking back again of how close Irenaeus is to the apostolic age. Irenaeus, Polycarp, John. And if we take that one step back, Jesus. That close to the apostolic age. And so what's interesting, and Litvin mentions this in his book, as we think about Irenaeus as this, this, this principal architect of orthodoxy, somebody very early on saying, this is what Christians believe, because this is what the apostles believe, because this is what Jesus believed. What's interesting is, Irenaeus is not an innovator. He's not doing new stuff. And another church historian said this about Irenaeus. What Irenaeus achieved through his struggles with the Gnostics and others cannot be denied. And there's perhaps no greater testimony to his theological legacy than that it passed unobserved. He was simply passing on what the apostles had said and what Jesus had said and what God's people everywhere believed. That's what he's passing on. He's not known for innovation. He's not doing new stuff. He's not breaking new ground. He's saying, you guys are doing that, and it's not okay. I'm passing on this apostolic deposit, and we're encouraged to do that in Scripture. This faith that we have received, that we would pass it on to others. So Irenaeus is not being praised um, for how creative he is with theology, but that um, these orthodox in his theology, teaching what the apostles taught. Um, look quickly at... Uh, Irenaeus is a defender of Scripture, specifically looking at his book on the apostolic preaching. It's a really cheap edition of this, but a good edition. Popular patristics. Patristics is just study of the church fathers. Popular patristics. Irenaeus of Leon on the apostolic preaching. Good translation. Very readable. Um, But we're going to look at him as the defender of Scripture. And, And something I think that's interesting about this is that this book was lost for a really long time. Like, we got a manuscript of this book in 1904. So scholars knew that it existed. People talked about the apostolic preaching and Irenaeus writing it, but we didn't have a copy. And then a copy becomes available. I think it was in Armenian. And so now we have a translation from the Armenian of uh, Irenaeus against heresies. Really what Irenaeus does in this book is he's defending Scripture specifically against the Marcionites. And we'll talk about the Marcionites briefly What's really interesting that he does, and the guy that does an introduction to that book kind of sums this up, what's interesting is he basically does what the apostles do in the book of Acts. He preaches from the Old Testament, and we're going to see how important that is, but he lays out what might be called redemptive history, a history of how God has interacted with his people. He just does it from Scripture. He's just walking through from the Garden of Eden to redemption in Christ. What's this basic storyline of the Bible? And that's how he goes about this apostolic preaching. So Bear, who does the introduction to this, says, Irenaeus doesn't present Christianity in the way that we've come to think of it, as a system of theological beliefs. Moreover, very little place is given to the ecclesiastical, the church stuff, or sacramental dimensions of Christianity. Nor does he describe the mystical life of prayer. Instead, Irenaeus follows the example of the great speeches of Acts, so you can see how rooted he is to God's word. I'm going to do what they were doing in Acts. Recounting all the various deeds of God, culminating in the exaltation of his crucified son, our Lord Jesus Christ, 
and the bestowal of his Holy Spirit and the gift of a new heart of flesh. Most striking, however, is that in recounting this history, the New Testament writings are not utilized by Irenaeus as the foundations of his presentation. The whole content of the apostolic preaching is derived for Irenaeus from the Old Testament. This doesn't mean Irenaeus didn't believe in the New Testament. He cites the New Testament in a bunch of other places. But when he's doing the apostolic preaching, he does what the apostles do in the New Testament. They cite Old Testament scripture. We're going to see how crucial this is in Irenaeus' day. This in turn implies a recognition of the scriptural ultimate authority of the apostolic preaching. So really, when you look at Irenaeus' context, Marcionism is another form of Gnostic thinking. It's, It's a specific brand of Gnostic thinking. Marcionism plays off the wrathful Hebrew God of the Old Testament over against the loving, forgiving God of the New Testament. So drawing a sharp distinction between these two gods. And this leads Marcion to effectively lop off the entire Old Testament. This is not fitting to talk about God. This isn't scripture. This is some lesser God that it's talking about. And also portions of the New Testament. Interestingly, his Bible ends up containing 11 books, not 66. Parts of the Gospel of Luke, not the whole Gospel of Luke, just parts of it. And then the epistles of Paul. So that's Marcion's canon of scripture. Those are the books that he includes in. So Marcionism is taking root in second, second century Christianity. So you can imagine Irenaeus pumping out a book on the apostolic preaching where he's saying, what did the apostles teach? And he only cites the Old Testament to talk about what the apostles preach. So you can see how this is. Maybe not a direct, I don't think he mentions the Marcionites in this book at all. But this is a direct affront saying, hey, you guys are wrong, blatantly wrong, because what did the apostles do that you seem to be so enamored with, Marcion? They quote the Old Testament over and over and over again. So some have called this the mutilated canon of Marcion. I think it's a good picture. You've got the canon of Scripture all ripped up to fit somebody's wants. And so we see this assault clearly in on the apostolic preaching, and Irenaeus is presenting a different form of Christian belief from Marcion. He's presenting the apostolic form of Christian belief, which is Christianity. Um, it's an interesting side note that Irenaeus was, was also one of the leading figures in establishing the canon of Scripture that we have. So actually establishing not just the Old Testament, which was agreed upon by people other than Marcion, but also the New Testament as well. So he makes extensive use of the New Testament, just not in this book. So these are the two major works of Irenaeus' life. And we just have on the apostolic preaching in the last century, we've gotten this. But against heresies is really important for us in understanding the early church. So we're going to take just a moment to talk about what we can learn from Irenaeus. What we can learn from this man's life, the sketchy details that we have, and what we can learn from his work in his writings. So the first thing that we can learn is persecution is not the worst fate for the modern church or any church. Apostasy is. Us abandoning our profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is the worst fate of the church, not persecution. And so we see for this guy who's living in a time period where the guy who discipled them was killed by the Roman Empire, The guy whose job he took was killed by the Roman Empire. He's killed by the Roman Empire. His contemporaries are killed by the Roman Empire. Persecution was not the worst fate that he could face. Denying orthodox belief in the Lord Jesus 
was the worst fate that he could imagine. And so he used his life to fight against that. I think it's also instructive that we have Irenaeus in this time period very much rife with persecution, fighting apostates, people that are denying the Orthodox faith, faith, and he's teasing out the nuances of heretical Gnostic beliefs in this climate. What we believe about God is important. What we believe about the Lord is important. And how we distinguish ourselves from those who do not believe in the same God is important. And so here we have the life of Irenaeus spending, um, spending his life addressing these things. And really when we think about our own day, this could be a stark contrast for us as believers. When we think about our Christian culture, where doctrine, ironing out what we believe, and what contrasts us with people who do not believe the same things as us, I'm not talking about nitpicky details. We're talking about important distinctions in our faith. This is shunned. It said those things are too rigid and academic. They don't have anything to do with everyday life. But here we have Irenaeus thinking they do very much have things to do with everyday life. We also live in a Christian culture where persecution is to be avoided at all costs. And please know that I'm speaking to myself when I'm saying this. I'm not downplaying the seriousness of persecution, but you can sometimes get the vibe in the Christian church, particularly in America, facing persecution is the worst possible fate for our church. It's not. Apostasy is the worst fate for our church. And so we need to hold fast to what we believe. Persecution or not, it's not going to be easy. But we need to hold fast to what we believe. And I'm reminded of the words of Jesus in John 15. John 15, verses 18 through 20. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. The world hated Jesus. We should not be surprised the world hates us. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. You think about this chain of discipleship for Irenaeus. Jesus suffered persecution and died. John suffered persecution. Polycarp suffered persecution and died. Irenaeus suffered persecution and died. This is a normal part of Christian existence, is persecution. I've got a professor at RTS who regularly reminds us that we are the weird ones as believers. In America, in the 21st century, generally accepted for our beliefs. I know we feel persecuted at times, but in the history of the church, we're weird. Because for the most part, Christians are not living high times. Everybody thinks well of them. Everything's great. Typically doesn't happen. It's an encouragement for us from Irenaeus in his life. We'll talk more about persecution next week. Um, Second, Irenaeus challenges us to receive God's word as it comes to us. Two Testaments, 66 books, 
one glorious central figure, our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Irenaeus is pumping out in the second century and saying, you've got these guys like Marcion that are mutilating the canon because he doesn't like what the Bible says. We don't do that. It's not what the apostles did. That's not what we're going to do. It's a quick question. Do you think we still deal with the spirit of Marcion in the church today? Do we find attraction to certain portions of the Gospels and Paul's letters over anything else in Scripture? Do we effectively dismiss the Old Testament for much of our devotional life? Do we play off the loving God of the New Testament over against the harsh, legalistic, and punitive God of the Old Testament that we feel like we need to apologize for? Because it's embarrassing. A lot of times we don't like the Old Testament. This spirit is very much alive in the church today. At an academic level, the canon's questioned constantly by critical scholars unwilling to accept the authority, reliability, historicity, and morality of God's word. The canon of scripture is being assaulted constantly by academics, saying, no, 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 this isn't some special book. But also, at a popular level, how often do we make our own head canon of passages that we like? Things that we would rather go to there's some other embarrassing passages that we would rather not go to ever. Which passages rub me the wrong way? Which passages make me too uncomfortable? And all too often, this canon in our heads fails to include much of the Old Testament. You just cut it off. Irenaeus challenges us to accept God's word as it comes to us. Two Testaments, 66 books, one central figure, the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to close uh, with a quote from Irenaeus. We've talked a lot about him. Let's hear from him. And I think this gives you a sense of his understanding of the sweep of biblical history and also the sweetness of our redemption in Jesus. He says, this is from the apostolic preaching, the transgression which occurred through the tree was undone by the obedience of the tree which was shown when the Son of Man, obeying God, was nailed to the tree, destroying the knowledge of evil, introducing and providing the knowledge of good. Evil is to disobey God, just as to obey God is good. As best as we know, Irenaeus obeyed God unto death. That was his calling in life. And so we see the beauty of the redemption that we have in Jesus in this quote, undoing Adam's curse with his obedience I'm going to leave us there, um, but I do want to give you a quick preview of the next few weeks, hopefully getting you excited to talk a little bit more about the early church. Hopefully this hour did. But next week, we're talking about Perpetua and Felicity, um, and the subtitle for them is Faithful Unto Death. I, uh, to be honest with you, putting this picture in the PowerPoint earlier, uh, I got a little bit emotional. Again, this probably isn't a faithful, accurate representation of Perpetua and Felicity, but these are uh, two young Christians in the second century who were put to death for their faith. And we're going to read about their account next week. Um, But these are sisters of ours in Christ who are um, with the saints who have gone before us into the heavenly place. Um, We're going to talk about the Cappadocian fathers. Great picture of these three guys. Basil, Gregory, and Gregory. Uh, Basil, Gregory, and Gregory were fortunate enough enough to live in the time period when um, 
There is less persecution taking place. Uh, but when persecution com- comes down, heresy heats up. So these guys are lions of orthodoxy. They played a big role in the uh, Council of Constantinople. So we'll talk about them in two weeks. And then Augustine, the giant of the early church. And uh, we're going to talk about Augustine, the prodigal who comes home, and talk a lot about Augustine's life and about his writings and the ongoing importance of this man for our faith. But again, as we look through those pictures, as inaccurate as they are, you will notice how different these people look from us and the different cultures that they lived in, the writings on the side of these that we can't read, and uh, reminded that, well, there's English on that one, um, but reminded that we have a lot to learn from these believers in other cultures. Um, I'm going to pray for us, but then if people have questions, feel free to stick around. We're a little bit late, I apologize, um, but let me pray for us, and we'll go from there. Father, we ask by your grace that we would fear apostasy above all else as believers. That our greatest fear would be to deny you, regardless of what comes, that you would give us the strength, the courage, and the faith to boldly proclaim our belief in you, regardless of the consequences. We thank you for men and women who have gone before us, and even men and women in our current Um, our current world who face persecution daily, facing persecution right now. We ask for your grace for these believers, that you would give them a peace that passes understanding, that they would know your love and care even in the midst of suffering. Father, we also pray that you would give us grace to submit to your authority. Your word is not always easy, but it is a gift from you. And so we ask that you would graciously allow us to trust your word, say what it must, that we would not be tempted to form our own canon of things that we like from your word. Lord, we're grateful for this time together. We pray that you would build us up, that you would challenge us from this time, that you would increase our affections for you and for others. Amen.